LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. Well, g'day, I'm Scott Sanders. I'm Derek Hanna. Welcome to The One Thing, a podcast designed to give you one solid practical tip for Gospel Centre Ministry every week. And the one thing, it's brought to you with thanks to the Geneva Push, the Australian Church Planning Network. Uh, and today we've got a very special guest, Robbie Gallaty, all the way from uh, Nashville in Tennessee in America. Welcome, Robbie. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, Robbie is, uh, is part of the LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. We love being a part of this network. There's a whole bunch of great Christian podcasts. And Making Disciples is, uh, is the podcast that Robbie Gallaty features in. And he's today's guest. Uh, you want to check out that podcast. The latest two are pretty good, but the the one, I, the most recent one I listened to was how gaming connects with discipleship. You've you discussed Fortnite, a whole bunch of games. I got to admit, I got to admit, I I never had a Commodore sixty four. Uh, I never had an Atari. I was jealous, uh, and I do remember waiting half an hour, like you talked about in those episodes. So, Robbie, do you want to talk a bit about your gaming past, or you want to keep that on the download? Well, no, I, and I started with an Atari gaming system years ago, uh, and then, you know, do y'all remember the Atari? Oh, we yeah, do, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, man. Pong We've still and, got that and, in Australia, actually, Robbie. That okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. But then moved on to Nintendo, and then now uh, I've recently converted to PC gaming. Chris Swain, my uh, co-host on uh, Making Disciples, has got me on PC game. But the problem with PC gaming, if you know, there's a learning curve to it, right? Mm. Like I'm used to like a controller with a few buttons. Now I have an entire keyboard and a mouse. And so, yeah, wow. there's a learning curve. A lot of discipleship going on with that. Now, so. <laughs> yeah, and so can I encourage you, listen to that episode. Robbie actually does talk about discipleship. They do spend a good 10 minutes talking about gaming and reminiscing and everything else, but they do actually get onto the community that is actually uh, there in the gaming world. Now, you've pressed play on episode 48 of The One Thing, and we're going to be talking about small group essentials, uh, but our Australian audience isn't that familiar with Robbie Gadley. So, Robbie, uh, we, we, Derek and I both love hearing people's stories of how they came to follow Christ. I'd love us, uh, yeah, tell us, how did, how did you follow Christ? How did you become to be a follower of Christ? Yeah, so uh, short, it's a long story, obviously, but I was actually raised in a very religious home. My family went to a Roman Catholic church, went to every Sunday service. We were very religious, though. We, if we missed church on Sunday, we went to confession on Saturday. But, you know, I didn't know the Lord. I heard about who Jesus was. I didn't have a relationship with him. Uh, went to a Catholic high school and then got a scholarship to a Southern Baptist college. And if you don't know what that means, I was unknowingly going there but uh, to play basketball. But I was the target guys of every evangelism class on campus, right? <laughs> like, who do we tell about Jesus? This lost guy driving blaring uh, unedited rap music on the Christian campus. And uh, I heard the gospel, you know, so like 1995, I heard the gospel, but I rejected it. But the cool thing about that was God would use that seven years later to kind of bring forth uh, the, the seeds of that investment. I got out of college. Uh, I started to train Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is kind of, you guys are familiar with the UFC, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. in Australia. But uh, I was training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and uh, a guy sees me out one night. I'm 290 pounds back then, six foot six, and a guy's like, "Hey, would you be interested being the head bouncer of my club downtown New Orleans in the middle of Mardi Gras?" Wow! 
I said, let me get this straight. You're going to pay me to fight. I'm in. Right. And so, <laughs> uh, I couldn't pass it up. And so I did that for about uh, six months total. A guy pulled a gun on me in the parking lot. I moved from bouncing to bartending November 22nd, 1999. My entire life changed. Uh, I got rear-ended 65 miles an hour by an 18-wheeler, slammed my car into the guardrail. I herniated two discs in my neck, two discs in my back, and I went to the doctor. And they said, hey, you, 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 it's amazing you didn't get hurt worse than you are. And they sent me home, guys, with, with four things, Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. And uh, so I got a bunch of pain pills, a bunch of muscle relaxers. I got, uh, you know, some anxiety pills. And so I'm taking the drugs every four to six hours for pain. And you know the story, right? So within three months, I'm addicted to pharmaceutical drugs. I run through the 30-day prescription in two weeks. And so I've got to find this way to fulfill this insatiable desire to get high. And so a friend of mine says, why are you fooling with street drugs? You can buy heroin and cocaine. You can buy it in bulk. You can bag it, sell it, and make money. And so I took the business knowledge I had years before, brought it into the drug world, had a successful import business for about two years, made a ton of money, but the addiction was overwhelming. Uh, long story short, I robbed my own family for $15,000. I ran out of money. I took the, my dad's credit card, memorized it, charged the charges, lived without gas, electricity, and water for three months, two rehab stints, finally, November 12, 2002. I'm in my room. I'm not in a church service. I'm not in a revival. I crowd to the Lord and I said, God, if you're real, I'm going to give my life to you completely, but I'm going to go after you with the same intensity I did to get high. And if you know anything about an addiction or an addict, man, I'm all in at this point. And so that's 2002. I wandered for the next eight months. Like I didn't know how to read the Bible. I was Christian, but I didn't know how to read the Bible. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know how to memorize scripture. I'm at Edgewater Baptist Church and a guy named David Platt who is a church member and looked at the time about 12 years old, David, you know, <laughs> he looks about 20 Sticky now, but back then he was way he still younger. Right? And so David, for those who don't know, he's the author of Radical, a pretty popular book. He's a pastor at McLean Bible. But back then he's a seminary student. And guys, he said, do you want to meet once a week to study the Bible, memorize scripture and pray? I said, David, I would love to. He said, pray about it. I said, I already have. When do we meet and for two years, every week, twice a week, David and I met. We prayed together. We, we, we studied the word together. He gave me a passion for the nations, a burden for expository preaching. Uh, he gave me a joy for discipleship. And so I tell people, the reason I've given my life to discipleship uh, now is because I'm the product of discipleship mm. back then. So that's really kind of the story. Mm. Mm, that's good. And I think it's probably um, you know, not everyone has that. Uh, amazing story of how kind of God, God grabbed hold of that. What you said at the end there, I think, is is true for most people. That there is often one person or a, a number of people who have invested deeply in the of the ground. That's what we want to kind of unpack today. How that passion, uh, how that history for you has uh, evolved and grown into a passion that you are hoping to see uh, within churches as well. So some of the things that we kind of want to uh, uh, pick on today. Um, is that around that importance of discipleship? No, like no one who leads a church um, is uninterested in people growing to be like Christ. I want to see people taking off the old and putting on the new, uh, and that happens in relationships. That happens in community. So, can I? Uh, can we just ask, just as we we kick off here, as you uh, as you think about um, discipleship, uh, what what is it? 
is it your history? Is it what you've seen in other people? What is it that makes you passionate about discipleship in the local church? Yeah. Well, I mean, not to give a Jesus juke, but, uh, <laughs> you know, Jesus's final words to us should be of first importance, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. he left and he's like, hey, oh, by the way, go therefore and make decisions, right? No, he didn't say that. <laughs> go, go therefore and make Christians, right? Go therefore and make converts. Like he didn't say any of that. He could have. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. And so I started really thinking about that. And I realized that discipleship is more than just transfer of information, as we've learned. And it's more than just a one-time decision. And here's what I found. Most Christians and most people listening would agree that we have spent a lot of time in Christianity teaching people what they're saved from. But when you agree, we, we fail to teach people what they're saved for. And so a lot of people would say, hey, we need, a, we need more evangelism. We need more baptisms, we need more people saved, and I would agree. But the reason we're not seeing Christians today share their faith, could it be that they have been learning how to share their faith all their Christian life, and nobody taught them how to share their life, which is a big difference. So let me make a statement that that I think people need. Baptism is not the finish line of a relationship with Christ or even success in the church. Like, them is the starting line. Right. Like that's where the real work begins. And and for so many, and, and I'm guilty as charged too. I mean, I've been there before where a person comes and gets baptized. We pat them on the back. We say, you know, brother, suck it up. We'll see you next week. And, and boy, by the way, here's the gospel of John. Start there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and then we wonder why we have spiritual infants in the church who want to grow closer. Like you said, uh, you know, want to, want to learn and hear from God there. I mean, I think they want that, but they don't know how. And when people, and I've learned this just being around people and pastoring people, when church folk don't know what to do, they don't do anything at all. And so, and so what we've done at Replicate, the ministry I'm a part of, and even the churches I've pastored, we have reduced our discipleship model to a threefold process where people take one step and they evaluate what step they're on and they take the next step. So here's our threefold process. We move people from worship to life group, which I know you guys are part of and appreciate you championing that. And golly, we need that. But we tell people there's one more stop on the train that's a little different than a life group, which is, you know, men and women together, living life, fellowship. For us, it's evangelistic. We have a lot of people coming who live in a neighborhood to a home than they ever would come to a church, right? And I'm sure that's happening where you guys hmm. are. So, but, so Robbie, but what helpful, we say is... It'd be helpful just to unpack... So uh, unpack those three stages just from a, an Australian perspective. So with worship, you're talking about the Sunday gathering. A lot of churches in America, for example, focus on that as kind of the you know the only on ramp, the only sort of way into church, and really the only place you get discipled. You've got the Sunday school tradition of the Southern Baptists, and a lot of churches in America, which is the you know speaking up front, talking to students, you know downloading content, not a lot of accountability, and not a lot of uh, you know, sharing of yourself and your own walk with Christ, and then you want to add this third step, this this D group step as well. Is that have, have I captured well the sort of culture in America? No, that's exactly right. And, and, and here's what's funny: I, I've preached on making disciples, and I said this line that preaching is not the only piece mm. of discipleship; mm. it's the centerpiece. It's not the only piece. And I had professors push back. What are you talking about? And what I told them was: here's what's staggering. Think about this. In Jesus's ministry in the Gospels, now this is the greatest orator ever to step foot on planet Earth, right? I mean, this is God incarnate, right? Like he could speak better than anybody. And yet Jesus, you ready for this? 
restricted 90% of his time to investing in 12 men. Mm -hmm. Like he rarely spoke to the crowds. And I'm not saying we don't speak to the crowds. But the reason Jesus spoke to the crowd, the large gathering, was to move people into smaller intimate gatherings. And here's what Jesus knew. Watch this principle. If he could grow these men deep in the word and in the words of Christ and obviously the word of God, then the width of the ministry, the breadth of the ministry would expand. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're starting with a disciple first model where we're trying to get people into these smaller groups for high accountability, intentionality, scriptural accountability with reading and studying until the mentee becomes a mentor or the player becomes a coach. And so, yeah, so, so the worship gathering moves into life groups, which most people probably listening have a two pronged approach, right? You have a, you have a worship gathering, you have a life group. So what I'm asking you to think about is take the life group model, those friendships you've forged for months and years naturally kind of flow into this smaller gathering where you can meet for coffee, you can meet for breakfast, you can meet for lunch. And in that D group time, now watch this, it's a closed group. They meet for 12 to 18 months. The reason it's closed, uh, Scott, is because if you have people kind of revolving door coming in and out, then there's not a lot of intimacy and transparency and confidentiality. But if you keep it closed, you know, guys are going to come in. They won't come in at first, but they'll say, hey, I'm struggling with porn or man, my, my marriage is hanging on by a thread. And so that group gives that, that, that opportunity to do that. And then the groups meet for 12 to 18 months, the textbook, I know this is going to surprise some people, but the textbook is the Bible, right? <laughs> like it's crazy. They got a lot of ministries out there in that want you to study every small group curriculum study. No offense, but then the Bible. And what we're saying is get people in the Bible because the Bible is transforming it. And then here's the thing. They reproduce those groups 12 to 18 months later. Yeah, I want to How keep, I want to keep unpacking that after, uh, after we just jump into the toolbox. So hold that, hold that question, Derek. And uh, I just want to, I just want to highlight three resources for our, uh, our listeners. And then I, would, I do want to press more into, uh, you know, some of these questions around uh, discipleship groups as well. So my top three must have resources. Uh, first one is um, is making disciples. Uh, the Robbie Gallaty podcast. So I've got got Robbie on today, so we can introduce him. Uh, we'll share some links uh, to some of the recent podcasts, so you can check that out. Uh, Robbie's already mentioned Replicate. Um, I've listened to some uh, a couple of talks on the Replicate website on on uh, a healthy church. What is a healthy church? They're three simple episodes. You really see more of uh, Robbie's heart for seeing healthy uh, churches and seeing churches invest in, in, in these sort of three areas, uh, the gathering, uh, life groups or this, you know, small groups in the church, and then this uh, D group principle that we're going to unpack a bit, a bit more. And then the final thing is, uh, Robbie, you've just written your third book, uh, Here and Now. Um, if 2017, 2018 was all about identity, it seems like everyone was writing books about identity. It seems as though the, the challenge now that a lot of writers are wrestling with is, is sort of the, uh, the now and the not yet. How do we live as Christians, you know, looking forward to, uh, to the new creation? And, uh, and Robbie's book, I guess, wrestles a lot, you know, a lot with that. Um, so we'll talk a bit about, uh, about the book in a moment. But uh, Derek, just want to press back into uh, at the second part of our time with Robbie. Uh, you wanted to follow up on, uh, on D-Groups. Yeah, look, the story of my ministry, Scott, has been you interrupting me before I say something profound. So, uh, 
He's consistent. Uh, he's consistent. He's, yeah. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. I love Americans and their positivity. That's great. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, that is, so for D-groups, uh, Robert, can I ask you, because uh, in Australia, and I'm sure it's the same in America as well, uh, people, particularly guys at uh, my stage of life, so you know, I'm early twenties. Is that right, Scott? Uh, <laughs> no. I'm forties, uh, three kids. Uh, life is pressing in on me. It's busy. It's hard. How do you? How do guys and and girls find the time for a D group on top of other things yeah. that are happening within the church? How do How do you talk about that? Build a culture of that. How do you see it playing out, brother? I get asked. It's a great question. I get asked this question all the time because. I, I did a, I did a training about two years ago for a large church in America, uh, long history, well-established church, and I was training their staff, about 100 staff members in the room. And the pastor sat me down, and he had just heard this concept of D groups, and he said, let me get this straight. You're asking this group of staff members who are already busy and, and, and challenged with deadlines and goals and everything else to add one more thing to their schedule? Like, Really? And so I said, that's a great question. I said, let me ask them a question. How many people in here ever wake up and eat breakfast with someone? Anybody? You ever go to breakfast? They said all the time. I said, anybody in here? I know this is a rarity, but does anybody in here ever eat lunch with somebody during the week? They said all the time. And so I said, listen, I'm not asking you to add something to your schedule. I'm asking you to multiply what you already have scheduled. And so we, we need to just think creatively. Listen, there's nothing greater, particularly in the States, I think, than getting a bunch of Christian men in a secular place like a restaurant with Bibles opened on their table as a witness. I mean, listen, you want to take a guy out of their comfort zone, take them to a restaurant and study the word. Listen, but here's a cool thing. We'd have people that would stop us, Derek. They'd come and say, I don't know who you guys are, but would hmm. you pray for me? Hmm. The waitress, the waitresses got saved. The owner of the business got saved. People came to church. It was just an amazing uh, witness for the community. So yes, is it a time addition? Yes, but it's just finding those creative ways to meet in an already existing busy schedule. Hmm. Yeah. What kind of percentage of people in your church would you have in degrees? Yeah. So the percentage is we have. 55, 55, 58% of our people in life groups that are in attendance. Okay. And I've been at the church I'm pastoring now is I've been here three years. There's a big shift that's happening. It's a long story. I'm at a great church, but there's a big shift uh, with our life group. The life group attendance when I got here was down. Our pastor before me passed away. So there's a lot of reasons for that. Mm-hmm. So we, we've, we've grown from 25% from life groups to attendance to now 55%, which we think that's a really big win mm-hmm. in three years. But 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 out of the people who are from life group to D group, we have roughly 28 to 30 percent. Is that right? I think yeah, I think that's about right. 28 to 30 percent. But the cool thing about the D groups three years in, it's a slow process that has kind of a J curve effect. The Vec growth. I'll tell you what happened at my last church. When I got there in 2008, I started discipleship groups in the church. Nobody had ever done this. Okay, They had heard about discipleship but never done, had done it. Uh, there were 12 people in the groups in 2009. It was one guy on staff and me. I had two groups. The next year, I discipled my staff in 2010. The number grew from 12 to about 32, 31. The next year, those groups multiplied. Some didn't repeat, but most did. The number grew to 65 people. So the staff started doing it, some other people. The next year, the number grew to 125. 
The next year grew to 255. The first book that started this discipleship movement is a book I wrote called Growing Up. Growing Up is, is how, how, how disciples who make disciples. It's kind of the, the watermark book, watershed book of our ministry. And that really started this discipleship movement. Uh, I challenge, and, and it's the book we use in the discipleship relationship. It talks about discipleship and exponential growth. But here's the thing. I challenged our church that I was at to just meet in a group of three to five people for 12 weeks, not for 12 months, 12 weeks. Read the introduction, read the 10 chapters, read the after it, 12 weeks. People can do 12 weeks. That's palatable. They, they don't think 12 months, right? The numbers grew from, from 252 to 787 in one year. Now, think about this. That's a lot of groups of three to five, a lot. Mm-hmm. The next year, that number grew to 1167. And when we were leaving, we projected it could hit close to 1500. And I came to Long Hollow. But I tell you that to tell you this. It is a long-term crockpot recipe. This is not a this is not a microwavable process. So pastors, you know, we 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 want to know when it's going to happen. We want it now. Why is it not happening? You got to realize at the end of Jesus's three-year ministry, and this is the greatest guy to ever step foot on earth. He raises the dead. He gives sight to the blind. He produces catfish po'boys dinner on the ground, right? I'm from New Orleans, so he, he could produce those po'boys. And listen, at the end of his ministry, guys, think about this. He has a whopping 120 guys. Like Outreach Magazine is not doing a story on that. No offense to our Lord, but – and what I'm getting at is not that Jesus was doing anything different that, that we shouldn't come in or model. What I'm saying is he had to be on to something more than quick – have it now discipleship processes. Jesus knew that if he could invest in a few people and grow those people deep, that the breadth of the ministry would be unstoppable. Well, yep. thanks for joining us, uh, Robbie. It's been really, uh, really great to hear your story and also to hear more about your passion for discipleship in the local church. If you like what you've heard today on The One Thing, we'd appreciate it if you just take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, even leave a comment. Uh, thanks for joining us for another episode of The One Thing. I'm Scott Sanders. Jerry Kenner. Chat soon.